Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study called Killing Me, Why Dying to Self is the Only Way to Truly Live. We think this series has the potential to change our lives. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. This morning, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, 35 to 41. I'll be there in just a second. While you're looking that up, let me just tell you this quick little story. A number of years ago, I felt like God was leading me to go to a gay bar in Hartford. I went, I went every Tuesday night for a number of months. I did that because I felt like God really wanted to communicate something. It, it really bothers me when people say that Christians hate gays. It just bugs me. I don't know what it is about that statement, but it just really annoys me because it's not true. I mean, yes, there are probably a few Christians who hate gays, and, and yes, I think most Christians uh, love, homos- love people you know, in homosexuality, but maybe don't know exactly how to express it the best way. I'll get that. There's certainly a lot of that. But um, I felt like God was leading me to to just be a bridge. So I went down, and I would never recommend doing this. Uh, if, you struggle, if you struggle with um, alcohol, or you struggle at all with homosexuality, I would not recommend this at all. Um, but neither one of those is an issue that I deal with. So I went down every Tuesday night, and it was a sacrifice. I'd put my kids to bed. You know, I like to go to bed early, those of you that know me. And I was leaving the house at 10 o'clock at night. And then uh, staying until closing time, two in the morning. And over the course of those months, I had numerous conversations with people about Jesus and uh, great opportunities. And one particular night, there was a man that I was speaking to. And in the conversation, the love of God came up. And he began to react. He had a visceral reaction to that idea that God would love him. His cr- he began to cry he, he, he got tense, he, he got aggressive, you know, and he came forward towards me, and, and he, said, he said, how can you say that God loves me when he took my mother from me when I was nine years old? I mean, he's still, years later, angry at the death of his mother when he was a child. Couldn't reconcile those two, loving God, taking my mom. You know, that's not a new problem, right? I think many people struggle with God in some situation like that, where we're disappointed or we're hurt or something like that. It's really not, it's it's a fairly common struggle. And maybe that's some of you even this morning, that you're just, maybe you're not where that man is, where you've just completely left God altogether, but you're kind of on the brink of just cashing it in. Or maybe at worst, just staying there but cooling down because pursuing God is too much work. It's too much effort, and you're not getting enough out of it. So you're doing the cost-benefit analysis, and you're saying, eh, maybe I'll just chill things for a while. I want you to hear this this morning. I believe that God's word for us is this, as I've been praying for us, is this. He wants to strengthen feeble hands and weak knees. He wants to strengthen feeble hands and weak knees. 
there's not, a, there's not a simple answer to that dilemma, I'll be honest with you. And I doubt that I'm going to satisfy all of those questions this morning in this little message. So please don't expect that. But if somewhere in the course of this, the Holy Spirit uses this word and just maybe gives a little bit of hope in your heart, like it's worth it after all, then that'll make this morning a successful day. Amen? So I'm going to set the bar really low, and we're going to go for it, okay? So Luke chapter 19, we're going to begin right here, though. It's Palm Sunday, and we want to read this Palm Sunday passage. Luke chapter 19, verse 35 to 41. The disciples came, and they'd already went out and got this baby donkey for Jesus to ride on. And now we come to verse 35. They brought it, they brought the donkey to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and they put Jesus on it. Now make note, that's a colt, it's a baby donkey. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed be the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Okay, can we just begin this morning, this Palm Sunday, and acknowledge how amazing this is right here. Try to wrap your mind around this. God riding a baby donkey. What, what must have to happen in order for that to work? This is so far outside of our ability to comprehend it that we don't even have words for it. What does it take for God to ride a baby donkey. For someone who is eternal to bring himself down to such a level that he can even fit onto a baby donkey, much less ride the thing. For someone who has only ever known the praises of angels to receive the feeble praises of mortals with old coats and palm branches, merely twigs. For someone who has sat on the very throne of glory presiding over the entire universe to ride the dusty back streets of Jerusalem. Can we fathom such a leap? Is there a mathematical equation complicated enough to explain the distance that God had to travel in order to do this? And what is more, that God would endure the skeptical mockery of religious leaders who thought they were smarter, holier, more righteous than he. Teacher, tell your disciples to stop. Rebuke them. And then Jesus' response. You notice that he wept as he approached Jerusalem. He wept. His anger did not flare up and incinerate all the mockers and the doubters. Jesus didn't call down an army of heaven to blow these idiots away. He wept. There are two Greek words that get translated as weep. You've got the Greek word dakruo. 
It means to cry silently. This is the cry that I have when I'm watching a Hallmark movie with my wife. You know, because I'm a mush bucket, so I cry. But I don't want her to see me crying at such a dribble. That would like, I'd have to give up my man card to do that. So I cry silently. Pretend like it's not really happening. That's not the word that Luke uses. The word that Luke uses here in the Greek is the word klio, which means to express an uncontrollable, audible grief. This is something that Jesus could not control. His gut was wrenched. His heart was broken. His soul was pierced. And the only reaction that he could have was to break down and sob uncontrollably. In other words, this is not Jesus putting on a show for the camera. Oh, people are watching. Quick, make it look like I care. <laughs> That's not Jesus. What we have here in Luke 19 is the God of the universe who has so invested himself into the plight of humans. He has so condescended. He has so come down to our level that he's become embedded in our troubles that he's allowed himself to become personally affected by our brokenness. We break, he breaks. Stunning. Absolutely stunning. Psalm 56, verse 8, it says that God collects our tears in a bottle. He records my lament. He records our sorrows. He doesn't dismiss them. God doesn't minimize them. He doesn't shrug them off. He doesn't tell you and me, suck it up, buttercup. That's not God's heart. It's as if every tear is a diamond and he collects it. He holds them close to his heart. It's amazing, isn't it? That God would allow himself to be so affected by people like us. Which all brings me back to the first question. What does it take for God to do such things? What does it take for God to ride a baby donkey or to endure the mockery of mortals or to weep over our brokenness? What does it take for God to allow himself to be affected by the likes of us? Amazing, isn't it? And have you ever noticed how you and I have a hard time lowering ourselves to serve or to help or to identify with or step into someone else's pain. Like, we have a hard time with that. And isn't it interesting that God lowers himself for us, but we're constantly trying to elevate ourselves? Isn't that something? We will step on, step over, lie, cheat, pretend, manipulate, pay off, sleep with, put up with whoever we need to in order to get ahead. Like, that's how we operate. But what we have here is the example of Jesus, and we have the Scripture teaching us that, well, the only way to truly live is to die to yourself. The only way to really experience life is to stop living for you. Something, isn't it? One time Jesus said this to a crowd. He said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very self? Jesus says, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. Do you see how backwards that is to the way that we operate? 
in another spot in Scripture, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, the Apostle Paul, he challenges us to adopt the same mindset that Jesus had. And he said, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. So the one who made the whole world made himself nothing. Do you see? He made himself nothing. And then he refused to grasp for the very position that's rightfully his. The word that Paul used here that gets translated as to grasp is this is a fun Greek word, harpagmos. It means to seize by force. It's the image of a bunch of pirates, you know, herulians, pillaging, plundering, stealing, taking whatever it is they want by force. That's mine taking it. See, Jesus is not that way. Jesus does not grasp. He made himself nothing. Wow. So is it any wonder, now think about this, is it any wonder that the Christian life you and I are attempting to live is so incredibly difficult when you think about the one we're following? It's impossible. Is it any wonder that the call to be like Christ is so daunting, it's so overwhelming, that most of us don't even bother to try? I mean, I can't. There's no way. It's impossible. So what do we do? We settle for being nice people instead. It's so crazy impossible to be like Jesus. I'd just rather not think about it. You know, give me something that I can do. Like that I can do. You know, maybe throw a few bucks in the plate, call it a day. That's got to be good enough, right? Maybe I volunteer at a soup kitchen once in a while. That's probably good enough. How about if I do the soup kitchen thing, but I don't take any pictures? I don't post it on my social media site. How about that? Then it's in secret. That's just like Jesus, isn't it? Yeah, right. See? See, maybe I do that. See, I do these things, right? Do you feel the tension? Like following in Jesus' footsteps, dying to myself, is so incredibly impossible for social ladder climbers like us that we opt out of that and we look for other ways to try to satisfy the requirement that don't require so much from us. I I tend to approach Jesus the same way that I approach, uh, the same way that I walk the streets of a big city. Do any of you do this where, let's just say, for example, that I have a hundred bucks and cash. So, but I don't put all the hundred bucks in the same pocket. So I put a, a couple of ones in this pocket, and then I put the rest of the money in another pocket someplace else. And that way, then I'm not fumbling through my full hundred dollars when I need something in the city. And that way, if I you know, happen to come across a homeless guy or something like that, and they ask me for money, I can say, well... All I have is one dollar here. I'll give you everything I have. Okay. But really, I've got a bunch of tens and twenties over here. Right? Am I the only one that does? Am I the only liar amongst us? Oh, okay. I guess I am. Anyway, so we all do that, right? Thank you. Now we can admit that. We get that on the table. So we all do that. But you know what? We come to Jesus in the same way, don't we? Jesus says, hey, I, I want everything. And we go, well, let me see, Jesus. Wow. Okay, well, I, I, I guess I got a buck. I'll give you everything I have. It's everything I got, Jesus. But really, I've got everything else hidden away someplace else, see? 
So here's the question. How does God help me in this? Given the fact that I'm struggling so much to be like Jesus, given the fact that I'm struggling so much to die to myself, right, to follow his example here, how does God help me? Well, there's two specific trials that God puts us through, and these trials are ones that you and I would never choose on our own, never. They're far too uncomfortable for us to choose them. So we wouldn't ask for them, and in the midst of them, it looks like God is being mean, and it feels like God is not being loving, but really he actually is being loving because he's leading me through this process to shape and to mold me and to lead me into dying to myself. Let's not forget that the whole title, that the title for this whole season that we're in, remember, is Killing Me. It's a fun one, right? Killing me, why dying to self is the only way to truly live. That's what we're working on in this season. And we're learning that in order to experience intimacy with Jesus, I need to die to myself. That love goes up as self goes down. That the less self there is, less of me there is, the more love I experience. The more of me there is, the less love I experience. And this works in all of our human relationships, and it works in our relationship with God. And so we're in this process of dying to self so that we can experience greater intimacy with Jesus. And we discovered that in Scripture, this concept is so difficult for us to wrap our minds around. You can't really put words to it, but Scripture helps us. It gives us pictures. And pictures don't even fully cover it all, but they help take us a little bit further. And we learned that there's these six word pictures. We're learning, that's what we're looking at. Let me just give us a quick review. So our relationship with Jesus begins, and it looks like the relationship between clay and the potter. He's the potter, we're the clay. He's God, we're not. Very important place to begin. And then from there, we learn that we can actually begin like to hear his voice. The relationship goes deeper, and the Bible depicts this as the shepherd and the sheep. The sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and they follow me. And, and we've discovered that, well, this is a great time, but hearing his voice is only half the equation. We need to learn how to obey his voice. And the Bible depicts this as master and servant. He commands, and I obey. This is important. But then we discover that Jesus wants to take this even deeper because he doesn't want to just spend forever bossing you and me around. He doesn't just want master-servant. Jesus wants to be friends. We've discussed that already. This is all review. He invites us into friendship. And you think, wow, could there be anything more amazing than that? And I know that some of you, at least, I don't know how your life group has gone, but I know in our life group, we've had this discussion about the friends, and several people in our group said how awkward it made them feel. Like they didn't, they felt like it was too casual. God wants to be my fr friend. They struggle with the concept. And it really is an amazing concept that God would want to be my friend. You know, when I truly understand that, is that not, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? So could there be anything greater than that? And the answer is yes. The truth is, friends, if you being the friend of God 
If you were uncomfortable with that and that blew your mind, the next two word pictures are going to blow your ever-loving mind. And we will get there, I promise. But the only way to enjoy those next two word pictures truly is death to self. The only way, otherwise, they can't happen. See, here's the deal. We all begin our relationship with God on selfish terms. And that's the way that it has to be. I mean, honestly, let's face it. We were sinners on our way to hell in a desperate strait, and God stepped in and he rescued us. Were we not the ones in need? Yes. So it's okay. We began that way. It's perfectly appropriate to begin that way. I needed a Savior. He's the Savior. So perfect. He saved me. Thank you, Jesus. Okay? Now, at first, our relationship with him, when it begins, these lines are kept very clear. He's the potter. I'm the clay. He's the shepherd. I'm the dependent sheep. He is the master, and I am the humble, obedient servant. Do you see how the, the proper order is maintained? In the relationship, it's kept clear in the beginning of our relationship with God. There's a real clear line. But then Jesus starts to change things on us. He calls us friends. That blurs the lines between God and us. Friends are mutual. There's a give and a take in friendship. There's a communion in friendship that doesn't exist in the other relationships. You appreciate that? Yeah. See, this is what we see on Palm Sunday, is it not? That God is on a donkey in the midst of people? That God leaves the pristine palace of heaven and gets dirt under his nails? That God is bridging the gap? God is spanning the chasm? God's blurring the lines between us and him? God among humans. God being affected by humans. Absolutely stunning. See, here's the deal. God loves you, well, like you're the center of the universe. He does. And you know, most mature adults understand this concept that the world does not revolve around me. How many of you know that? Is that a surprise to some of you? If it is, I'm sorry. <laughs> the world does not revolve around you, okay? However, hear this. God loves you like it does. He is such a good lover. He loves you like you're the only one to love. See? And so this can mess with your head. You can begin to think that somehow you're more than you are because God's constantly telling you that you're more than you are because he's such a good lover. This can mess with our heads. And so God in his kindness takes us through these two trials so that we can begin to enjoy mutual friendship with him while still keeping those lines clear. He's God and we are not. That never changes. Amen? It, you and I are never going to be God. Let's just make that clear right now. You and I are not, like that's not, that's a lie, that's a false religion. That's, you and I will never be God. And the lines between us and him will always be there. However, God does not want that to affect the mutuality in our relationship. Does that make sense? See, that's what God's working on. He's working on 
us being able to have a mutual, intimate relationship with him, keep that line there, but let's not make that line a big deal. That's where he's taking us. You say, well, why is God doing that? Because here's the deal, friends. You'll never be fully satisfied while you're doing your own thing. You'll ne- it'll, it'll never work. You'll never be fully satisfied while doing your own thing. You'll only be satisfied when your heart becomes like his heart. When you can begin to move with the rhythms of grace with him and not against him. Like doing it naturally without being told. See, God doesn't want to have to tell you to do stuff all the time. He just wants you to have his heart so that you can follow his heart, see? When when our kids were little, one of the games that we would play, and you probably played this game too, is maybe you played it with other little kids. If you don't have children even, it's a pretty common game. But they would step on my feet, and then we'd walk across the room while they walked on my feet, and they would hold my legs or hold my hands, that kind of thing, you know. And we, and we would giggle, and we'd have fun. And whenever they would, you know, move an opposite direction from me, then they would fall off my feet, and we would trip and laugh and have a nice time. And then they'd get back on my feet again, and we'd keep on walking and trying it. And whenever they stepped away from me, they would stumble. Now, why did they have to step with me? Why, did, why do they have to step with me? Because I'm five times their size. I can't step on their toes. I can't walk on their feet. They have to walk on mine. They have to ride my feet. And the same is true with God. He can't ride on your feet, friends. That is just not going to work. You need to ride on his See, and when you begin to do that, you discover there's joy in the journey. Like when I stay on his feet, when his heart becomes my heart, that's when I become most alive. That's when I discover like the joy of walking with God and being in communion with him. So these two trials are totally necessary. They're an important part of us dying to ourselves so that we can enjoy the thrill, that thrill of mutual relationship with Jesus, where he doesn't need to jerk my chain to get me to obey. He doesn't need to pull rank on me to get me to follow his lead, where I'm learning the dance with him, joyfully following his lead. So here's the question that we need to ask ourselves before we look at these two trials, and the question is this. Jesus does not always do what you want him to do. Are you okay with that? Now, we might not want to answer that question so fast, but let it sit there for a moment. Jesus doesn't always do what I want him to do. Am I genuinely cool with that? Can I tell you that some days I am and other days I'm not? Can I be honest with that? There's days where I'm content with him being God, and there's days where I want to be God. See? Jesus doesn't always do what I want him to do, and I need to come to the place where I'm okay with that. Am I willing to keep praying when I don't see the answers to my prayer? 
when Jesus doesn't jump to it as fast as I would like him to? Am I willing to keep pursuing him when it feels like he's far away and he's hard to find? See, these are the two major trials, actually, that we all must face if we're going to enjoy intimacy with Jesus. It's the trial of unanswered prayer and the trial of distance. And I can tell you that these two trials are some of the most difficult that we face. If I go back to my friend that I spoke with years ago in that bar who's angry that his mother died, he faced unanswered prayer. And how did he react? See, he wrote God off, he got angry, he left. And there's a lot of people that do that. I've known people that have felt the distance between them and God and said, God's not real. They stopped feeling it and they walked away. And so it's, these are trials that you and I need to reckon with. Neither We would never do them on our own, but God is gracious enough to bring them to us. And so let's just look at them briefly, just very quickly this morning. Okay, First, the trial of unanswered prayer. Have you ever felt like your prayers got lost in heaven's inbox? Have you ever felt that somehow your prayer landed in God's spam folder? You know, right there with the Ethiopian widow whose husband left $3 million in a bank account, and if you would just give your account info, they would wire that money to you. You know that email. We've all gotten it. Boy, she's tried. So, right? Maybe my prayer has gotten stuck in that spam folder, and maybe that's why God hasn't heard it, right? Have you ever felt like your prayer has just gotten dropped? It's hard to reconcile Bible verses like these two Bible verses, Mark eleven twenty four 24 says, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. How many of you love this Bible verse? Oh, I do. Yes. Put that on a bumper sticker. I'm claiming it today, baby. Whatever I ask for, I've received it. Hallelujah. Woo. And then I read Psalms 22, 2. And the experience of the psalmist who says, my God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer. How do you reconcile these two Bible verses? They're in the Bible. They're the word of God. And yet they tell me two completely different things, don't they? It's hard. Have you not wrestled with this? Why does God answer some prayers at the snap of a finger? Or maybe he makes me wait a little while. Okay, I can take waiting a week or two, you know. I'm, an un, I'm not an unreasonable man. Why does God answer some prayers? And then at other times, he takes years without doing anything. It can be really frustrating and if you walked with God long enough, you've experienced this. Now, if you're a new Christian and you haven't, and right now God's answering all your prayers, we rejoice with you. I don't really want to rain on your parade, but I can tell you the day is coming when you'll feel this, where suddenly a prayer or two does not get answered. And what do you do? Here's the question. Will you persevere in prayer anyway? Will you keep praying because the Bible says to pray? 
Will you keep praying because you believe that prayer is worth it? Will you keep praying for healing because the Bible says that God's a healer? Will you keep praying for breakthrough because our God is a God of breakthrough? Will you keep knocking on heaven's doors until your knuckles become bloody? Will you keep praying? Will you remain faithful to obey the command to pray even when it looks like your prayers are not getting through? Will you? Will you? That's a question that you can only answer in a season of unanswered prayer. Do I believe in prayer enough to keep at this? See? It's a hard question to answer. And here's the deal. God does not want you to pray because he tells you to do it. God wants you to pray because you believe that it's worth it. And how do you know if you believe that it's worth it unless you keep praying in the face of no answers. God, I'm not giving up. I, your word tells me this. God, I'm standing on it, and I am not letting go of it. See? If God answers every prayer, having every prayer answered at the snap of a finger, that turns me into a spoiled brat. It does not make me a man of prayer. And God wants me to be a man of prayer. God wants me to be a man who, who, has, who communes with him, who, who owns prayer, who believes in the value of prayer, the, the importance of prayer, who will stick with it no matter what. So the only way for me to know that is if I go through a period of unanswered prayer. Again, it's not a period that I would choose myself, would you? But yet God in his grace and his kindness allows me to go through seasons like that. And he's strengthening me. He's building that muscle. Now, speaking from personal experience, the trial of unanswered prayer is easy to go through for me compared to the trial of distance. I love the presence of God. I have experienced the presence of God. I have been to the mountain. Have you? If you've been to the mountain, you know what I mean. I have been there. I have tasted the presence of God. And it is sweet, and it is good, and it is my favorite thing. I have been there. I have been there where I lost track of time. I spent hours in the presence of the Lord, and flew by like that. I've been there. I know what that's like. I love and I cherish the presence of God. I cherish his friendship more than anything. So why must I go through times when God feels far away? And I'm not the only one. People in the Bible have felt like this. Here's a couple of scriptures, just a, a sample. Psalms chapter 44, verses 23 and 24 the psalmist says, Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Have you ever felt that God fell asleep on you? Like, gone. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and our oppression? Psalms chapter 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Have you not ever felt that? That God is almost hidden from you. He's distant. 
the cold winds kind of blow in your relationship with him. In John chapter 11, Jesus is summoned to the bedside of his sick friend Lazarus. Many of you probably know this story. You know, Jesus had a lot of followers, but he had very few friends. And it's safe to say that Martha, Mary, and their brother Lazarus were three of Jesus' closest friends on earth. The chances are very good that Jesus grew up with them. They were childhood friends. The Bible, almost every time that Jesus is in Jerusalem, he goes to Bethany, which is right next door where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. We have several stories and accounts of Jesus at their house. So what I'm saying is these people are very close to Jesus. Okay, these are not just any old people. And in John chapter 11, Lazarus is sick. Now, if you're sick and Jesus is your best friend, what are you going to do? Right, okay. That's not a trick question. You and I, you know what you would do. You'd be calling Jesus. And that's exactly what they do. John chapter 11, verse 3. It says that Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. And they said, now, you know, they didn't have texting back then or phones or nothing like that. So they got to send a messenger, right? It's going to take a little bit of time. Send a messenger to Jesus. And they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Did you catch that? The one you love. The one you love is sick. So this is not just any old schmuck with a tummy ache who's griping about it. Like, no, Jesus, this is the one you love, Jesus. Remember, you know Lazarus. Of course you do. Of course you do. The one you love. And yet, you know, the Bible tells us, John chapter 11, that Jesus did nothing about it for two days. Nothing. In fact, by the time he showed up, Lazarus died. The funeral was over. They packed up the potato salad like it was done. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Mary and Martha, I'm yanking Jesus' friend of the year award right there. Like, Jesus, what kind of lousy friend are you? I, I thought we were tight, and you didn't show up. You didn't even have the decency to, like, send a card. I mean, something, Jesus, right? Now, I know some of you are thinking right now, you know the end of the story. And you're like, oh, yes, but really, we all know that Jesus <laughs> brought Lazarus back from the dead. Yeah, okay, we know that. We see that. But I'm just wanna, I want you to sit for a second in the pain of Mary and Martha. Don't, don't, don't brush past their pain. Sit for a moment in it. And the disappointment, I sent word to Jesus, the one you love is sick, and you didn't show. And Jesus, that, that hurts. Let's just call it what it is. That stinks. Have you ever cried out to Jesus and he didn't show? I have. It's, been, it's, it's angered me, it's infuriated me, it's shaken me to my core, it's hurt me, it's devastated me. I have felt that. How do we explain this? How do I explain God leaving me hanging when I need him the most? Why does God stay over there when I need him here? So can I just be honest with you? I'm actually 
in this season right now with God. I have been for months, months. I know what his presence feels like. And I can't tell you the last time that I had one of those mountaintop moments where I'm just in tears in the presence of the Lord and we're worshiping and we're just grooving. I miss it. I can tell you that it used to bother me when it would happen. Because it does happen. You walk with Jesus long enough, you're going to experience this. And, and I've had it happen, and I've, it's, been, it's bothered me. It's, it's, I've gotten angry, and I've been hurt, and I've had you know, all those emotions I've gone through. Doubted my faith, I mean, all kinds of things. I can tell you, though, this time around, it hasn't shaken me as much. I'm waiting. I know I am his, and he is mine. I know that. I know it. I know it. I do. I am his and he is mine. And I'm remaining faithful, pursuing him, committed. So here's the question that we have to answer. And it's a question that I can only answer when I'm in the midst of this trial. And that's this. Anyone can love God when the feelings are hot. Anybody can do that. What do you do when the trail goes cold? See, is God worth the pursuit? Is your love for him based on how he makes you feel? Or is it built on faith? Because if your love for him is based on how he makes you feel, that is a very weak foundation. And how do I... How do I let go of the feelings as a foundation and really become rooted in faith? Well, it's hard to do it. It's painful, but the only way is to go through seasons of distance. And in that season, I answer, I, I say, Lord, I'm willing to remain committed. I'm willing to remain faithful, see? I'm faithful, even when I'm not feeling it. I'm faithful. I know so many Christians, and not, I'm not saying this to shame you, but I know an awful lot of Christians who stop reading their Bible because it gets a little hard. See? There's a, there's a reason why people hate Leviticus. Because it's a hard book of the Bible to read. It's a hard book of the Bible to connect with God in. I'd much rather skip over that, you know, and go to something that's a little more fluffy. Right? It's, it's where, it's, I mean, how, how often do we do that? Well, I've, you know, I, it, the Bible stops being a little more, stops being as alive to me, you know. I haven't gotten as many juicy quotes out of it lately as I would like to. And so next thing you know, I give up on it altogether. Am I, am I willing to keep pursuing him, right, even though I don't feel it? It's an important question to answer. I see this same dynamic at play in my marriage with Karis. 
You know, we've been married a long time, right? Um, we love each other, but it hasn't always felt hot. Can I be honest? And I think any married couple, you stay married long enough. Now, if you're newlyweds, I really don't want to hurt you at all, but it's coming, right? <laughs> you know, and I think Karis would say the same thing. Says, I'm not speaking out of school at all. Like, she's, she's, there have been literally, literally been times in our marriage where she has said to me, you know, I love you, but I don't really like you that much lately. I'm like, literally, right? So I'm like, well, I, I love you, too. Right? What do you do in moments like that in marriage? Because we all have them. That's a normal part of married life. What, you, see, you, see what, you see what's happening there is this. The truth is we're not less married because we don't have, because the feelings are less hot. In, in fact, there's something about, there's something about like the commitment that we have in marriage that endures through those periods of, you know, coldness where it fluctuates, that it's, it's in those periods where we recognize, hey, we have a covenant, we are in this together, we love each other, we're committed to one another, like we're in this for the long haul, you know what I mean? It's in those seasons, that's when that gets, that's when that gets revealed, tested and revealed, see? And it seems like it's those seasons that then coming out of those seasons, oh, it's nice coming out of those seasons, right? And the same is true in our relationship with Jesus. Can I love Jesus even when he doesn't make me feel good? Can I love Jesus even when he doesn't make it all about me? Because remember, he does love you like you're the only one there is to love, and that is awesome when you experience that. And then when you experience the flip of that, it's not so much fun. Can I still love him when he doesn't make it all about me? Of course I want to. Jesus, I am yours, and you are mine. So how about you? We just, have you ever felt frustrated? Jonathan, you can come. Have you ever felt frustrated with unanswered prayer? Well, keep praying. Keep praying. Do you believe that prayer is valuable? Do you believe that prayer is essential? Do you believe that God answers prayer, that God works through your prayers? Keep praying. Have you ever felt that God is distant? Felt the cold winds blow in your relationship with Him? Well, keep pursuing Him. Keep pursuing Him. Is He worth the pursuit? See, I need him. I need him. And not just what he can do for me, I need him. You hear the difference in that? I need him. The God who died to himself in order to have a relationship with me is asking me to do the same. Intimacy always requires dying to self, and it's always worth the price in the end because that's the thing that you are really longing for. You want that connection with God that can be, that's unshakable. You want that with Him. 
you, you want a relationship with him that that is does not get does not get get rocked by circumstances and situations I want it to be I want it to be solid I want my heart to be his heart so it's worth the price if God has to take me through these seasons where I've got to press on then it's worth the price because that's what I want I want him I want him and not just all the things he can do for me Well, that about wraps it up for today. We're really glad that you joined us. We pray that this message blessed you. If you're looking for some more information, you can check out the resources page at newriverchurch.org and you'll find the journal for this entire series. God bless you. Have an awesome day.